Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I am thrilled to be here with Jamal Green, who is the Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia and the author, most recently, of How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. He's a very thoughtful person, and so I am excited to delve into issues of interpretation, pluralism, religion, and secularism, and much more. Thank you, Jamal. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the conversation. I'd love to start with a little bit of a personal uh, question. I know you started off as a journalist at Sports Illustrated. How and why did you decide to become a law professor? Well, this is probably a longer story than we have uh, time for. But uh, I, I think ultimately it came down to two things. One is writing. And I went into journalism because I was interested in writing. And I just really liked the sound of my own voice on the page, <laughs> um, but found sports journalism, at least in the form that I was doing it, to be unsatisfying in a variety of ways. And the second is wanting to take myself seriously. And that's really why I went to law school, is I was doing sports journalism. I grew up kind of a sports junkie and uh, fell out of that during my time at the magazine and, and wanted to be spending my professional time doing something that I really cared about in ways that I had stopped caring about about sports. What really appealed to me when I got to law school was that I was writing for myself rather than writing for a particular audience. And what I mean by that is not that I was doing something totally self-indulgent, but that I was developing arguments up to the point where I could feel good about them, where I thought that they were persuasive, um, rather than trying to satisfy a particular reader or a particular audience. There's always a trade-off involved in how deep one goes into an argument and how many people are willing to listen to you. Um, and I, I felt that that trade-off was uh, a little bit out of balance when I was in journalism, and I've, I, I wanted to bring it back into some balance. So that's the that's the short answer. Uh, but I loved law school. I find legal issues both fascinating and important. Um, and uh, I love teaching. I love interacting with students. Clearly, you have a love of learning, and there's an intellectual passion for this endeavor. Uh, but law also has an activist or an interventionist dimension. Uh, it affects people. And so I'm wondering if you have a theory of change as it relates to the study of law in an academic context. How does the theoretical pursuit of law and how to interpret it relate to the practice of law on the streets? That's a broad question. And I think it I think it will vary for different people in academia, um, each of whom might have their own particular set of commitments and particular vision for how that interacts with, with practice. I mean, I think the general thing I could say is that it is because we are not, we in the, in the academy, uh, it's, it is because we are not in practice that we are able to um, be as imaginative as we are at our best. Right? That once it's clear that the things you're saying are going to affect real people, you have to temper your idealism to some degree and think about your job in a political sense. And political, I don't mean in a partisan sense, I mean political as as in actually affecting 
societies in in real ways. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, I think that's the problem with the modern Supreme Court is that it doesn't doesn't understand that dynamic. Um, this is something that a judge that I clerked for, Guido Calabresi, would talk about a lot, which is, you know, you, you, people criticize academics for being for saying pie in the sky things and saying, well, we, how about getting down to brass tacks? But you know, once you get down to brass tacks, you can't quite be as pie in the sky. So I think academics are their role is to imagine what's possible, and it's for people who are involved in policy and in lawmaking to to implement that given the constraints that they're under as people who are political actors, who are politically situated, who have to negotiate with others, and so forth. So someone has to be the one who is saying, okay, here's the outer limit, here's what's possible. And there's a kind of division of labor, I think, with people who then take that and then bring that into political conversation with others. And some people will be closer to that process, and some people will be further away from it. Your distinction between the sort of the world of the ideals and the world of the practice reminds me of a biblical distinction between the archetype of Moses and the archetype of Aaron, where Moses is charged with being kind of the word of God and Aaron is charged with managing the people's reaction to that. <laughs> and um, Well, I, I would never want to compare myself to Moses. <laughs> right, right. What's interesting, I think, about your argument which is taking place in a theoretical space, is that it kind of advocates something like closer to what I would call the Aaron approach, that is um, thinking about real people as opposed to just what the law says in its sort of formalistic character. How do you personally balance that, the approach of Moses being sort of connected to some ideal with Aaron being the consequence of, of that ideal as manifested in people's lives. I don't quite see the dichotomy in exactly the same way when it comes to law. And maybe one could make that kind of distinction when you talk about, when, if one were to talk about moral philosophy or something like that, or political theory or something like that. But when we're, when we're talking about the law, the law is already intended to be practical. Um, judges are already in the practical world. At least it begs the question, right, to say that law is the word of God or something like that. It's intended to govern societies. It's intended to be political. And so the the mandate, the injunction that I'm trying to, to offer, um, in large part to judges, um, but not, not just to judges, because I'm also trying to affect our self-understanding, but, but to judges is to say, you are a political actor. Um, you're not a political actor in the same way that the president or a state legislator is a political actor, but you, your, your job is political in the sense that you are um, helping to govern a society. Uh, and when that's the role, everything you do has to be attentive to that role, that it's not taking an ancient scroll um, and trying to apply it to the practical. It's taking a practical scroll and doing your job within it, uh, the job that it's, that it's given to you within that practicality. So I guess I'll, I'll just uh, fight the hypothetical, uh, in, a, in a sense. One of your arguments is that law has to consider what justice is. It can't be just sort of focused on its own rules. And my question for you is, do you have like a good working definition of justice? Or let's say that a person wants to become a, a lawyer or a judge in order to implement justice, sort of how does one learn what this 
broad thing called justice is? Well, it's a great question, of course. I guess I would maybe clarify the claim a little bit, which is not to say that law has to take into account justice in some uh, in some abstract sense, uh, but that constitutional law in particular and constitutional law in the United States ha- has to take, in fact, the, the command of the constitution is to take into account what, what I might call a kind of constitutional justice, right? So we could imagine, you could imagine a constitution that doesn't have that command within it. You could imagine a constitution that's just a code, right? That just says, okay, here are all the rules. And then says, you must obey the rules to the letter of the rules. And the rules say, we're going to, you know, we're going to write out all of your rights and duties with great specificity. And um, what we're going to tell you is to, is you can't depart from that. Don't, don't consider any kind of justice. But that's not the constitution we have. Um, the constitution we have um, is one that is phrased, especially in its rights provisions, in quite broad terms. It uses terms like equal. It uses terms like liberty. It uses terms like uh, freedom. Um, these are not terms that are susceptible to rulification, um, and they're they're not they're not specified as rules. They're not written as rules. And so when I when I talk about the need to incorporate justice into constitutional law, it's really on the constitution's own terms that I think we must incorporate justice into constitutional law. So the question becomes, what does justice require? And often it will require some attention to the various kinds of claims being made on either side of a, of a legal dispute. Very often it will be the case that there are constitutional values that are on multiple sides of a legal dispute and the judge's job is to reconcile them in some way. Now, I can't tell the judge how to do that precisely. And this is part of the point, which is that we, we're all differently situated. Um, I'm not going to have the same values and commitments that a judge is going to have. Different judges on the same court are not going to have the same values and commitments. They have to take their own personal experience to the decision-making. They have to take what their own view of, uh, of the values of the American people to a particular dispute and have to weigh those values in some way. In the book, I offer some thoughts on how to do that weighing in in courts around the world. uh, There's there's developed a mode of reasoning that goes by the name of proportionality, which is a kind of stepwise um, process where you you think about the, the, the the fit between the means and ends that the government's pursuing. You think about uh, whether there are ways of the government achieving its objectives that don't interfere with people's rights uh, as much. And you think about the relative costs uh, of a decision in respect to the particular interest of the of the litigant or the individual on one side and the interest of the government on the other side. Um, there are different ways of doing proportionality and different you know the same you know, the same decision could be made differently by two different judges two different adjudicators who are bringing their their own judgment to bear on a conflict so i i'm not offering a way uh, an answer to constitutional conflicts I say, okay here's here's what justice requires and i'm going to tell you what the answer is it's to say your job is to incorporate some vision of justice um into the decision, um, and uh, and I think I, and I think there are ways of disciplining that that inquiry. But the the, the notion that it 
can avoid discretion or avoid judgment is is uh, simply not true. Does that make your argument largely a procedural one? You, your intervention is in the way that we go about decision making rather than at the substantive level? You're sort of agnostic? Or do you think that there are certain substantive commitments that we need as guardrails to this, what Michael Sandel calls the procedural republic? Yeah, I mean, it is it is largely a procedural intervention. And that sounds technical and it sounds lawyerly, but, um, but I think it's not uh, technical and lawyerly when it comes to making constitutional decisions. It really does matter um, whether uh, a an adjudicator or a decision maker thinks of themselves as Moses or thinks of themselves as Aaron. Um, uh, and, so, uh, and I think it's very important to our self-conception. It's very important to how uh, how the rest of us who are not judges feel empowered to make ju- to make our own judgments about the Constitution. Um, it affects how political actors understand their role, which is also to make judgments about what the Constitution requires. So I do think it's procedural. I, I wouldn't say, you know, agnostic. So I, I'm not agnostic to results. I have my own views about how cases should come out. I have my own views about how, how values should be weighed. I, I'm, I feel free to criticize people on the basis of how they conduct that, that inquiry, but, but that's a kind of internal critique, right? And, and of course, any time, um, you know, we live in a diverse society, so we're, we're always gonna, we're always gonna be um, gonna disagree with decisions that, that others make and feel free to criticize them. But the, the, the more meta critique, right, is a, is a procedural one. Uh, and 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 you know it's not a, it's not an entirely a flight from substance, right? I'm I'm articulating a a, a a vision that is, I think at bottom, a vision that tries to be liberal-minded in the classical sense, in that it uh, tolerates a variety of conceptions of the good, um, that's pluralistic, that you know, believes that we have to try to live together, that we're all different from each other, uh, and have different commitments. Um, inherently have different commitments, right? I, I'm so so that that's a vision, um, certainly, and that's not a that's not a neutral vision, uh, but I, I think it's a vision that the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, incorporates, uh, and I think it's maybe more important than that, at least more important to me. It's a vision that's necessary to um, to political progress. The subtitle of your book is that the way that we're that we engage with rights is tearing us apart. And um, my question is like, let's say that the Supreme Court internal, like they all read your book and they internalize the argument and they say, you know what, Jamal's right. Um, we need to be, we need to be less zero sum in the way that we approach rights. We need, we need to think of what we're doing as mediation and um, we need, we need to sort of honor and recognize the claims of both parties and, at the same time, we still need to make a decision. So we're going to incorporate, uh, and now I'm maybe being a little bit loose here, but we're going to incorporate a little bit more compassion for like the losing side. We're gonna uh, we're gonna articulate our conclusions uh, in terms of balancing different values and and how we think about proportionality as it relates to the facts. We're not going to sort of be absolutist and say, well, you know, this person wins because they have free speech on their side and this person loses because they don't. Is that enough to heal the divide that's tearing us apart? Walk me through how your approach is the opposite of tearing apart, how it's healing in some way. <laughs> I'm going to try to be maybe more modest than 
than my publisher would want me to be, right? Which is, uh, which is to say, I don't think that the reason America is polarized and torn apart is because of what judges say in court decisions. Um, I do think that there are things that judges could say in court decisions that would be helpful um, and that would not make things worse, which I think, which I, and I do think that they that they make things worse. And the way in which I think they make things worse is by essentializing our our values commitments, right? And saying the Constitution incorporates mine or or, or incorporates yours, so one of you is going to win, and the other one the Constitution just doesn't care about. Uh, and I think that's a formula for uh, for for polarization. The courts are a space where we can actually model a, a form of respectful political negotiation, right? Where you actually don't have people who are uh, who are institutionally situated judges, institutionally situated, so that they have to respond to, to a political primary or have to be or have to respond to partisanship. They they actually are able to say, okay, we're going to take a step back, calm down, everyone. We're going to take a step back. Okay, let's figure out what you guys have in common, and uh, and may, maybe that's the end of it, right? Maybe you just say, okay, here's what you have in common. Here's you know you can one side you know, the government can, has to respect this particular set of values. Um, uh, you know, Citizens United, you've got to respect the speech rights of uh, of of people engaged in political advocacy. And on on the other side of that, the government also is able to has the responsibility, in fact, to uh, make sure that the political process is not dominated by certain kinds of interests. Well, once we've decided that, okay, these are these are these are in conflict, or there's some tension between them in some way. Well, let's take a look at this law. Is this law respectful of those values or not? Um, are there ways it could be um, much more respectful of those values without losing? Um, its effectiveness along another other dimension. Maybe the judge doesn't even decide that that question. Maybe it says, "Okay, I've I've drawn some lines. Now come back to us in six months and tell us if, we're, if you're any closer together. And if you if you're not, then we'll we'll start making some decisions, right? So the point is to is to use constitutional law to force politics, to force dialogue, to force conversation, where the judges are drawing some lines on the on the on the on the on the outer bounds, but aren't making the decisions for us because that's not their job. They're not, their job isn't to speak for us. Uh, their job is to, is to set the limits of politics. So that's the sense in which I think it's different from polarization. There are lots of reasons why we're polarized. Um, you know, again, I think we, I think judges contribute to that in various ways. I think they contribute to it even beyond the decisions themselves. Obviously not everyone is paying attention to Supreme court decisions, but the terms of discussion in a number of areas uh, have been set by the court, right? So that's that's affirmative action in various ways. That's abortion in various ways. Um, uh, that's gun control in various ways. So here's here's three big issues right away, where where the court is is intervening in really important ways and could do better, could could help us get closer together and doesn't. So Hegel really stresses the importance of recognition as as part of what political life is about and. Um, I think that's in contradistinction from, let's say, the the more economic view of uh, political life, which is, you know, that it's just about we 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 band together just to, let's say, 
maximize our utility. No, you know, for, for Hegel and sort of people in that tradition, we come together because we want to be seen. We want glory and, and, and we don't want to be ashamed. <laughs> and, and so a lot of our conflicts revolve not around, let's say, economic decision making. Actually, we're willing to take a hit to our bottom line um, if, we can, if we can be validated, you know, in, in this sort of Greek mode that, that Hegel trumpets, if, if we have a, a space for our thumos to be, to, to, to be uh, manifest. And, and part of me, I, I think of that, you know, when I, when I read your book and when I hear you speak now, which is something like um, courts should be sensitive to the fact that people don't just relate to the decision in terms of whether they won or lost, but also in terms of whether they're validated as a person <laughs> or a citizen or whether they're disgraced in some way. And that also reminds me in, in Jewish rabbinic debates in the Talmud, a lot of um, a lot of the stories about rabbis debating concerns sort of honor and shame and the sense of like, if you lost the debate, you didn't just lose the argument, but like you you lost your status and, and you know, now you're going to die. <laughs> um, so, you know, to the extent that this is a true account, um, has it always been this way? Is that just the nature of sort of political life? Or do you think that something has changed in the culture that has made it uh, either from the court side or from the ground up side of just hum of social affairs that has made uh, hot button issues in particular sources of glory or shame and not just of practicality of like, do I have access to this particular good or not? I think that's very astute. And I, and I think there, I think there's maybe, a, maybe two different aspects of the Hegelian story you're telling. Um, one is a, is a kind of, um, a kind of empirical claim about behavioral psychology or something. You know, how do, how do people actually respond to political loss? Um, you know, I have an armchair psychologist assumption that that's right. That seems right. That that looks right from how people seem to respond to politics in general. Um, but I don't think that my account relies on that necessarily being true as a kind of behavioral matter. It, it, it's maybe enough to say, and again, this is also a bit armchair, but uh, but you know, it's a trade book, so we can do that. Um, is uh, is in the constitutional space. It's important for judges, I think, and to anyone who's making constitutional decisions to give people reasons to stay invested in the constitutional project. You know, the constitution, you know, it starts with we the people, we the people, it's for everyone. Um, and so we need to give people reasons to think the constitution is for them um, and not just for someone else. A part of my objection to the kind of essentializing of rights that I see is that it necessarily carries the implication that the Constitution is only for one set of people, uh, because rights are not um, understood in the same way by everyone at the same time. They're again, they're often on, the, on different sides of a dispute. So, I think that's the kind of constitutional element of this. And you asked if we've always been this way. Well, um, the way in which courts in particular have interacted with our constitutional rights has certainly changed over time. And it's it's been a much, much deeper engagement since the 1960s. I think appropriately a deep engagement since the 1960s, since I think um, 
I think the Constitution has a lot to say about rights, and it has a lot to say about rights in a wide variety of contexts. Yeah, I, I, and I, I offer that disclaimer because Justice Scalia um, had, had this account where he would, he said, you know, the, pro the pro problem all arose in the 1960s when we started thinking that everyone had all these rights. And um, and once you know, one, so long as we were just doing lawyers' work up here, we were just, you know, deciding about who owns Blackacre, then people weren't so mad. But they got mad because we started talking about these rights things that aren't in the Constitution. Well, I think he's wrong that the rights aren't in the Constitution, but I think he's right that that the, the genealogy runs through. Well, now judges are talking about real stuff, right? Um, uh, and they are deeply involved in our lives in a wide variety of areas. In not just race and segregation um, as they were in the 1950s and 1960s, but um, reproductive freedom and free speech along a very wide array of, uh, of dimensions, uh, uh, government services and how to think about our entitlements to them, criminal justice system, uh, sexual revolution. Um, uh, it, it goes on and on and on the ways in which our political conflicts have been judicialized since the 1960s, and so we, we need a we need a, a, a we need an account of how judges participate in politics, given that um, that that's inevitable when they're involved in those kinds of controversies. Some people write books for different audiences and maybe want the book to say different things to different people. Uh, I guess the sort of most uh, extreme version of that would be like the Straussian view of a, a philosophical text that have one message for philosophers and one for non-philosophers. But I'm wondering in your argument, is it the same message for everyone? Or if you had to talk to, let's say, people of the left, let's say either politically active people on the left or, or lawyers on the left, would you want to emphasize one message? And if you're talking to people on the right, a different message? If, if so, uh, what do you think you would stress differently to each audience? Gosh, um, interesting. So I, I, um, I don't know that I have a different message for the left and for the right. Um, I do think I probably have a different message for lawyers and for people who are not lawyers in that there are, I think, particular lessons for particular moves, interpretive moves that lawyers make. The book is quite anti-originalist, although I don't spend a lot of time talking about originalism. It's it's implicitly anti-originalist. Um, and so it, it does intervene, I think, in those debates in a variety of ways. And I, I think that those debates are only tangentially interesting to people who are not who are not lawyers. I think for, for non-lawyers, the bigger message is a kind of anti-juristocracy message. And to say that, that we have some agency in, uh, and we need to have some agency in 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 the development of our constitution. If judges aren't giving you that agency, they're not doing a good job. They're not helping us, um, and we should um, we should forcefully criticize them for for that. That there's got to, there has to be forms of dialogue. That the constitution is for all of us. That it's um, something that we have valid opinions about um, when it comes to to rights. Uh, but as I you know as I think about the right left dimension, I mean there are particular conflicts where I think. You know, my message will will hit differently. You know, so gun control, you know, for example, the message is very much an anti, you know, against the the stereotypically conservative view of gun control, which is gun rights are absolute um, and are insensitive to the particular harms that guns can inflict on society. 
um, and, and, and just rely on what, uh, what an 18th century text um, says about a very different um, social practice. Uh, that, that, that seems to me um, absurd and not necessary because right people on the right tend to be a bit more formalistic about constitutional interpretation, at least these days. Um, I think more of the book you know, speaks to that and criticizes that than the left. Uh, I have a chapter on abortion rights that is, I think, critical of some of the ways in which people on the right think about abortion rights, but is also critical of some of the ways people on the left think about abortion rights that I, that I think are, are counterproductive and, um, and not consistent with uh, with 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 genuine pluralism. So in that sense, you know, again, it's it's I think it's issue by issue, rather than um, right left divide. Mm-hmm. So one strange bedfellow potentially in this war on formalism that I think of is Adrian Vermeule. Uh, he's an anti-originalist uh, of the right who just came out with the book Common Good Constitutionalism, and I think like you wants to stress that uh, that that law is about something other than just codification or rule following. Um, walk me through I, I, at the same time I don't I don't think of him as somebody who, who cares much about mediation. <laughs> so maybe that's one of the places where you depart. but walk me through why his approach is wrong if you think it is or where you find sympathy with his approach since you both share um, a, a critique of originalism and formalism. Well, I'll try to model the the book by starting with the things that I think we have in common um, uh, before getting to where we differ, and I think both of those are significant, right? So we're both anti-originalists and we're both anti-formalist. Uh, I think both of those are true. Uh, I think both of us are um, would say that the measure of of a constitutional decision is what it does for our politics in the sense of does it make us a better society or, or not? Um, and that, that that kind of has to be the, the measure um, ultimately, uh, not, and it's not measured by whether you're, you adhere to some particular um, you know, hermeneutics or something. There are views that Adrian uh, holds that I, that I share. Uh, I, I think when it comes to federal power, I think that he and I uh, end up aligned often, maybe for somewhat different reasons, um, in that I think Adrian is very focused on, and here's where here's, here, here's what gets into what we where we fundamentally differ, is that Adrian is very focused on the need for authority, um, uh, and I'm very focused on the need for um, deference to certain kinds of political institutions. So I, the, the reason I think the federal government should often be deferred to is because they're the best, that's the best vision we have of, uh, of, a, of, of a pluralistic consensus, right? We're, we're for, the, the federal government is forced to compromise in ways that smaller governmental units are not forced to compromise. And okay, when we see that, we should take it very seriously. Um, when we see them actually act, uh, we should take that very seriously. Whereas, and to the degree they're not forced to compromise, we should take it less seriously. Uh, um, so, so where we really differ, I, th- I think, is is in our how much how much we care about pluralism. You know, I, I think it's incredibly important that the that the decision maker 
is sensitive to reflects our pluralistic character and reflects the fact that we have lots of disagreements and reflects the um, is is attentive to is responsive to in some way takes that into consideration the fact that um, lawmaking can dominate certain communities um, uh, and and that those communities count and should matter and should continue to have a stake in in, in collective governance uh, I don't read him as caring about that at all <laughs> um, uh, I read him as as caring about the effectiveness of the authoritative decision maker. Um, who who should be guided by some vision of the common good, um, but that's the, that's their decision, not ours, right? The, that's the decision maker's decision, not not the rest of ours. And and so I I think that's an important difference. Great. So I I share your commitment to pluralism. I I think to the extent that I identify as anything, it's <laughs> as a pluralist, even though that's quite a mushy uh, a mushy thing. Uh, but I'm wondering, because I'm always curious when I talk to people who, who are pluralistic, um, kind of how do you justify it? So I think, right, there's there are arguments from deontology that just say it's a fundamental good to be pluralistic. It's an end in and of itself. Uh, maybe that's virtue ethics, I don't know. And then there's instrumental arguments, which is, which are, uh, you know, that pluralism allows us to live together or that, you know, we're all in pursuit of the truth and we need viewpoint diversity, et cetera. How do you, how do you think about why pluralism is good just in general and also specifically through a legal frame? Is pluralism something that you find to be consistent with the American founding or is it something that, needs to be introduced, sort of injected uh, at a later point in American history uh, in, in order to correct, let's say, uh, a bent towards other values that were not sufficiently pluralistic. I mean, the obvious one I get is clearly like the legacy of slavery, but not only. One thing I'll say is that I don't think pluralism is the only value. I, I do think it's extremely important. Um, and I, I guess if I had to, to interrogate myself, and I don't um, I, I don't consider myself a philosopher. I know we're all philosophers in a way, but um, but I don't. I'm not a, certainly not a trained philosopher, uh, and uh, and and I and I. But I am a trained lawyer, and and so it, I don't know if that leads me to to this space. But I I am instrumental in that. I think that that the only way we can live together is to is to is to care about each other. Um, and if we don't care about each other, then we're going to have people on the outside. I also don't think I have a, a, a not not particularly well-developed account that of the legitimate exercise of political authority requiring some kind of political participation, um, that the only way we can justify dominating uh, each other in the ways that law dominates people and the way that law is inherently violent is... Um, is if we formally care about each other, we, we allow each other to participate in political decision making. Uh, we care about each other's interests and values. We incorporate them into our decisions. So um, that's a uh, again. I don't know how I would describe that in philosophical terms, but that's that's sort of where I am. There was a second piece to this that I the American founding. So like, do you do you think the American founding is pluralistic, and we just sort of need to extend that or there's a sort of because of slavery or, or other things, um, a lack of pluralism. And so there's we, we derive the value of pluralism from something like justice. And then we have to inject that 
into the American founding to supplement its its fundamental error? The American founding is definitely not pluralist. Um, there's no way of describing it in that. I mean, people try, but but they're wrong. Um, uh, the American founding did, didn't just exclude slaves; it excluded women I mean, from political decision making. It excluded the black population and the indigenous population. It excluded, in large part, people who were not property owners. Uh, and that that's true not just of the founding; that's also true of of large parts of Reconstruction, right? So we t- we take that to be some kind of saving of the Constitution, but that doesn't save it either. So I, I think that I think what follows from that is that we can't really take seriously um, as a as authoritative the particular compromises made by the founders. Um, that said, so I, I and this is going to get a little bit subversive, right? But I, I I tend to think of what we do in constitutional law as a second best to having a genuine constitution, right? One that we actually we actually all had a say and have a say today in, in in crafting and contributing to and amending and revising and so forth. We instead have this ancient document that we have a kind of loose consensus about. And so the question becomes, what should be our guide in interpreting that document? I think there are very good reasons for our guide to be, well, what gives us and us who we are now, us, we're, we're many different people from many different walks of life. What gives us authorship over our own lives? Uh, and so that that's where the pluralism comes in. The pluralism is just, it's, it's because we are pluralistic and I'm a, I'm a Democrat, uh, small d. Um, and so therefore I I believe in, in, in pluralistic decision-making. It's how that interacts with the founding. I think that's another book uh, that I haven't written yet, but uh, how that interacts with the founding is, I think, quite complicated. Uh, in, just insofar as the founding can't have um, that much say over how we make decisions now, um, in any way that I'm able to articulate as politically legitimate. And so it's a, it's always a. But I, I also think, don't think we're replacing the Constitution, right? So we're 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 always we're in the land of the second best, and once we're in the land of the second best, um, we have to be instrumental about how we proceed. Let me play, I don't know if it's devil's advocate, but let me give you a a counter argument of sorts. So I grant you that we the people has historically excluded any number of uh, folks that, that we looking back can say that was wrong, that was unjust. But within the category of who that we was, you could argue that there was pluralism and that all that we're doing now is expanding the cat the the circle of who's included in the we which is a good thing maybe we sh- we are motivated to expand that circle by demands which are actually anti-pluralistic such as just a sense of this is the right thing to do and plur- but pluralism is the operating procedure for how how the we should interact with itself so there's actually two competing values one is the value to expand the we um, and the other is once we've constituted the we whether that's a good constitution or not, how do we maintain cohesiveness amongst those who are in the we? So like in a, a hundred years or a thousand years, people might look back at our moment and say we were insufficiently inclusive uh, and that you know we, were, we, weren't, we also weren't pluralistic and they would be right if they're defining pluralism as synonymous with inclusion, but they'd be wrong if uh, 
if pluralism is more about how do you how the we interacts with itself, but not necessarily about the justness of who's in that we. So I think that's a fair pushback, um, insofar as um, the 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 framers were certainly not monolithic. Um, their own the way in which the constitution was ratified was more inclusive than political arrangements had been prior to the constitution, right? So on their own terms, yes, there was a there was a kind of pluralism. Uh, it's one that we reject, I think appropriately reject today. And so the question becomes, right, it's, it's not, is that a reason to wholesale reject everything they did? Um, I think the question is, what hold should that have over us? Um, what resources do we have for inserting ourselves and our own vision into what they did, right? So, so if the answer to that is Article 5 of the Constitution, which makes amendment practically impossible, um, on anything of significance, um, that can't be the answer because that was their answer, right? So, so you, you, I, I think it would be illegitimate if we said, okay, here's we. I think I'm. I think we're pluralists. We're internally pluralists. We have a, we have a, a variety of viewpoints. We we don't really exclude people who we think it's um, appropriate to include, um, and or, or, or views or values that we think it's appropriate to include. We don't, you know, we don't, we don't think that that Nazis get to get to you know direct how we think and so forth um, and 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 here's how you change the document here's how you change the agreement you change the agreement by getting a hundred percent of the people to agree um, and until you could do that then you're bound by that um, we would we would you know the people a thousand years ago should say for of course we're not bound by that that's that's nuts um, we, we have to have some 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 authorship here um, so you need to have mechanisms for inserting that authorship I, I think I don't think those mechanisms have to be formal constitutional amendment um, but if they're not we at least have to acknowledge that those other mechanisms also have some legitimacy to them um, and, and that formal amendment is not the only thing that counts okay so we're, we shouldn't be we're not, and we shouldn't be beholden to a, a text. That that's the dead letter, as it were. We ha we have to imbue it with the spirit of the law to to invoke Paul's distinction, which is, I guess, maintained by the um, those who are authorized. Is some combination of of uh, the will of the people and, let's say, legal experts uh, who are who who have authority only in virtue of of trying to represent this pluralistic audience. I guess the question then is: So what? What becomes of the letter? Do why do we need the letter at all? Is it just for symbolic purposes to to, to feel tethered to something, or does or does that does the text have some agency over us that that holds back our our interpretive needs or our interpretive desires? So I, I don't know that I have a fully worked out answer to that question. Uh, I struggle with it myself. Uh, I do think that there is something to the idea of it's a, a starting point for political conversation. It's a it's a loose constraint on that conversation. Um, it's not much of a constraint, I think, when we talk about rights, um, which is why in the book I don't spend a lot of time saying, "Well, here here's this is just the right interpretation of the constitutional text," because that, I think the text doesn't really constrain us very much when it comes to a lot of what we disagree about. Um, I, I do think there are ways in which the text is um, constraining, and that's when we're talking about 
relatively specific rules in the Constitution. So the Constitution says that uh, the president you know, has to be 35 years old. It, it says you have to have equal suffrage in the Senate. You know, those those kinds of rules. Again, I, I have I have reason to doubt that um, that we should be bound to those rules, even in some absolute sense, or, or, or that or that only Article Five of the Constitution can permit us to change those rules in any politically legitimate way. I, I reject that. Um, but when it comes to judges who are who are who can only make so many decisions on our behalf, right? They have to have a certain degree of humility about the decisions that they make. In the rights space, I think that humility requires them to not view um, constitutional provisions that are stated as open-ended values, to, to treat those as if they were hard and fast rules. That, that is not humble. Um, the humble thing to do would be to, 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 to act much more incrementally and much more cautiously. Whereas I think when it comes to the specific, specific rules, the humble thing to do would be to obey the rules um, and not to make them something they aren't. So on the topic of humility, as a non-lawyer, like I hear the the word Supreme Court, and it has that word supreme in it, and there's there's a kind of aura to the Supreme Court uh, in the culture. And my my grandfather uh, argued uh, one case before the Supreme Court, and I think that was the pinnacle of his career. And there's a sense of like, wow, this you know this there, there's something uh, profound about about this this body. But if we take the humble approach to law that you're advocating. It seems like we should deflate the status of the court <laughs> in some way. So what differentiates the Supreme Court from lower courts um, in, in your estimation? Like if we, if we apply your view of, of the job of judges, what, what makes someone qualified to be a Supreme Court judge versus a judge of a lower court, or what makes a, a case worthy of being heard before the Supreme Court? Is it just, is it just more of a gradient? It's not. There's no sort of ontological difference. It's just happenstance. Or is there a sense in which the Supreme Court, by virtue of being the final decision in the in the legal sphere, still gets, you know, still deserves a kind of uh, awe. So I, I I could say a lot about this. I I don't think the Supreme Court is different in kind, or should be thought of as different in kind from lower federal courts, um, except to the degree that. So what makes it supreme is that it sits on top of a hierarchy of courts, and so there's vertical stare decisis. Lower federal courts have to obey the things the Supreme Court says. That doesn't mean that the rest of us have to obey the things that the Supreme Court says. I think there are good reasons why, at least under many circumstances, political officials should obey what the Supreme Court says, right? But they should also obey what lower federal courts say. So um, so I, 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 I do think, I actually think the, the term supreme is is really, um, is, it distorts our vision of what the court is and should be. I, I, I often think of something that Justice Stevens, uh, John Paul Stevens, who, for whom I clerked, uh, said, um, a kind of famous quip that he made during oral argument uh, a couple of decades ago, where where the advocate uh, kept referring to Justice O'Connor as Judge O'Connor, and um, Chief Justice Rehnquist at the time uh, said he corrected him said that, you know advocate it's it's Justice O'Connor, and and without skipping a beat Justice Stevens says you know, Article Three makes the same mistake so so you're in good company. 
um, because the Constitution doesn't call them justices, it calls them judges because they're judges. They they, ex they exercise judgment. They are judges in in much the same way that other courts are judges. And in fact, and I've said this in in print. I, I said this in my um, testimony to the um, Biden's uh, White House Commission on uh, on the Supreme Court that I think it would be perfectly appropriate and perfectly constitutional to to just designate. Um, all of the courts of appeals judges as Supreme Court justices and just have them sit on panels. Uh, I, I don't think there needs to be a separate court that you call the Supreme Court. Uh, I think they'd hear more cases. They'd be less individualized and personalized in the way they make decisions. And I think that'd be, that would be a good thing. I wonder how this, this issue of sort of the status of the Supreme Court um, maps onto something that got me interested in law as an undergraduate, which is the, the field of law and literature. So I read, um, you know, essays by Robert Cover about how law isn't just about applying rules, but it's also about creating and shaping narrative. Like I think, right, he, he has this, um, this distinction between law is jurispathic, it narrows decisions down to one, it kills off other possibilities, but it's also jurisgenerative uh, because it, it, I guess, in his sort of romantic view, it, it helps, it, it gives us the language for understanding what worlds can be, something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and we, in that, in the class that I took as an undergraduate, law and literature, we often read Supreme Court decisions through a literary lens and said, you know, this is really interesting. It's not just here, you know, here's why you're right, here's why you're wrong, but also like, here's what, what we think of who we are as a, as a nation. And so is that tendency towards narrative, uh, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? How does that relate to pluralism? Is it, is it neutral? As you would have detected from reading the book, I'm, I'm very influenced by Cover. Uh, and I, uh, I actually refer to him briefly at the, end of the very end of the book. Um, I, I, I try not to, to turn off readers by using terms like jurisgenerative um, in, the, in, the, in the book. But but what what I'm influenced by the, the is is his commitment to the idea that that court decisions, uh, are, um, in some sense, and this is um, I, I actually think this is this is this makes them pro neutral rather than anti neutral. That court decisions uh, are not um, are not law. Um, or not, they don't exhaust what law is. I should say um, they're part of what the law is, but they don't exhaust what law is. They're decisions. They are um, dispute resolution mechanisms. They're very important. Um, it's important to resolve disputes, right? But it's also important, especially when you're when you're talking about public law, something that the Supreme Court um, these days just doesn't really distinguish from private law. Um, we're talking about public law. We're talking about making, um, saying things that democratically elected and appointed actors can or cannot do, policies they can or cannot enact, ways in which they can or cannot influence our lives. That when you're when you're the one making that decision, you've got to you've got to make it in a way that. Um, preserves the possibility of other forms of law, uh, because we don't live in a, it's not we the judges, right? It's we the people. And so when you write a, a decision, you know, there are ways of writing a decision that says, 
whatever I say is the law and that's that. And everyone else who makes a claim about how this should be resolved, who tries to contribute to that process is wrong. Um, you are The constitution is what I say it is. It's not what you say it is. So that's one way of making a legal decision. But you can also make a legal decision that says, here's the outcome. Um, here, um, um, it's, this was hard. And here's why this was hard. This was hard because what you're saying, you, the losing party, is valuable. Um, it's important to you. I'm going to make the decision in a way that enables you to keep that. You know, you have a you have a sense of what the law is and should be that's responsive to you and your own commitments. So I'm going to give you a way to keep that alive. And if the facts change tomorrow, then maybe you win. Um, so you're going to stay engaged in this project of collective governance. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that, that is a narrative. That's the neutral way, I think, to, to, to go about lawmaking. Uh, and so uh, that's the, I think that's the way my work uh, intersects with, with cover. Your book is about mediating rights conflicts in the legal sphere, but it also seems to be a book that has some wisdom for regular people about how to negotiate conflict in general. And so I'm wondering if you have thought about the applications beyond the legal sphere. To give you one concrete example, uh, I'm a parent of two young kids. <laughs> I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And uh, I mean, this is pretty classic, but you know, often one will take something from the other and the other will cry. And so each one, in a sense, has an implicit sense of this is mine, this is my right. Uh, what what do you think and is a good way of handling conflicts like that and then extrapolating out from children to other conflicts maybe between adults <laughs> when we apply the language that you that you espouse which is one of mediating between uh, legitimate claims on both sides rather than seeing the conflict as enshrining one person as having the absolute it's a great question, and, and I, I think it, it's important actually to, to talk to mediators. I mean, there are people who do this professionally who have insights about this that I think are probably quite valuable to um, to courts um, who currently understand their role in a more jurispathic sense. Um, and I, I'll, I'll also just caveat: I also have kids, and uh, and uh, I, you know, I I certainly don't have all the answers to, to how to how to mediate disputes between between children. Um, part of the problem, of course, being that children can often have a, a fairly narrow understanding of, of the other interests that are at stake in the, in the world. And part of our job is to, is to um, help them to internalize those other interests, right? And so first thing to say is, you know, the greatest advice anyone can give about children is, you know, this too shall pass, right? Is that they they will learn, they will grow, there are going to be bumps along the way. Uh, and our job is to it's to help them get there. Uh, and so one of the ways I think to help them get there again is to make more visible the other interest, right? And how would you feel if you were the other person? Um, would you want this to happen to you? What would you try to get people to, to empathize um, with others? Uh, which I, I think is just a, it's a, an important value in the law, just as it is in, in our day-to-day -day affairs. The other thing I'd say is, and this is what I try to do with my own children with varying degrees of success, is to try to 
get them to be forward-looking rather than um, just thinking about retribution. Um, you know, I've I've got to vindicate my interest by having you've got to yell at him um, to 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 you got to take something from him uh, to make sure you know make sure my interest is vindicated in some way, as opposed to okay, what would make everyone happy? Is there a way of moving forward? Um, maybe that way of moving forward is just forget about this. Let's go for ice cream. Like just forget this happened. Um, you know, what can you do to to help make this better? To help improve your situation? Are there are there things that that don't rely on other people to step in? Because you know what we're doing with kids, just as what we should do, we should do with each other, is to try to give people the tools to solve their own problems. Right? Courts should not be. Um, understood as you know the ones who in the first instance are going to solve our problems for us right they they should be helping us to solve our problems um, and setting some out of bounds like you can't hit them right you can't snatch it from him what are other things you can do to 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 solve this why don't you talk to him <laughs> um, um, okay don't you came to me did you ask him <laughs> you know that that how the number of times you have that conversation with kids is um, uh, you know did you say please did you did you did you ask him nicely you know um, and I, I really think that is probably applicable to to, to grownups as well, um, in that we once you think that you're entitled to something, it's mine, uh, then you think the right answer to problems is to go to the authorities um, to get them to give it to you. Um, if you're less sure about that, where you think, okay, maybe it is mine, but it's also his. Um, um, so, well, now I've got to talk to him about how we can both use this shared resource. Um, is a I think I think really the only way forward, and what the book is trying to do is to to, to help um, other institutions, courts included, to to recognize that that's they've got a role to play in making that the way forward. That's great. So we've got to get our judges to mature, and also we we need to participate in a process of uh, maturing as a nation, and not just uh, relating to one another as toddlers in a playground. <laughs> you got it. That's perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Jamal, for your time and insight. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for the questions. Thanks for the engagement. Uh, I've really enjoyed this. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.